Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're turning our eyes to Syria and the regime of Bashar al-Assad. For over a decade now, the regime in Damascus has been an international pariah amid a long and brutal campaign of terror by the Syrian armed forces against their own people. The geopolitical sands, however, are starting to shift with signs that governments in the Middle East are prepared to talk with Assad once more. We're going to look at what this means for the region, for the alliance between Iran and Syria, and whether justice for the Assad regime's many victims is now being lost to realpolitik. We're also going to look this week at the meeting by the Arab League in Saudi Arabia. This week, Ukrainian President Zelensky issued a rallying call for Ukraine at the summit in a part of the world where views of the war differ greatly from those in Europe. We'll ask what Zelensky was trying to achieve, what influence Russia has in the region, and how the war is perceived by governments and people of the Middle East more widely. I've got a great lineup here to discuss all of this. Dr. Sanam Vakil is a returning voice to the show, this time as our new director of our Middle East and North Africa program. Welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. And joining us as well is Dr. Haid Haid, a consulting fellow with our MENA program. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Terrific to have you here. Rounding off our panel is Professor Christopher Phillips from Queen Mary University, London, and the author of the book, The Battle for Syria. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you all here. And we're all here, actually, in the same room, which adds a certain speed to all of these. So we will get right in. And our first question is this one of Bashar al-Assad coming in from the cold. Sanam, what can you tell us about the last few months? Who's reaching out to the Assad regime and why? It's the key question, and it is a real surreal moment, Bronwyn, because this war in Syria has been underway for far too long, displacing millions of Syrians and killing millions of Syrians. And the fact that he's being welcomed back broadly by Arab leaders across the region is an interesting moment for geopolitical dynamics in the region, but also it tells a lot about where the Middle East is. So this rapprochement has been underway far earlier than this year. The UAE began its outreach to Assad in 2021 when the Emirate foreign minister showed up in Damascus. And since then, then there has been the quiet but incremental opening of the doors that really took off last year. And then with more momentum this year, Assad was seen in Dubai in March of this year. The Omanis also resumed ties as well. And since then, of course, he was welcomed back to the Arab League just a few weeks ago. And why? I think it's a reflection of a a stalemate. There is no more progress that has been made in uh, unseating Assad. I wouldn't say he's won the war. (laughs) And I think we have to be careful about framing this as a victory for Assad because I think we're very far away from that outcome. But there is no Western engagement in in coordination and unseating Assad. There is fatigue, conflict fatigue. And in absence of any coordinated regional effort or new thinking, in how to deal with Assad. Rehabilitation of Assad is seen to be a pragmatic, transactional way of addressing demographic challenges. And of course, there is a huge drug trade that is coming from Syria that is keeping this regime alive, that is putting challenges on the wider Middle East. Hayed, can you just pick up on that point that Sanam raised? This doesn't mean that he's won the war, but take us into the scale of what he's done and where that conflict is now. 
Sure. So the regime has been able to gain substantial military victories. For example, he has been able to recapture the majority of the country. He controls 65 to 70 percent of that country. He's no longer threatened by armed opposition groups, but that does not mean, as Sana mentioned, that he has won the war, despite his attempts to, with the help of Russia and Iran. You still see that two regions in Syria are controlled by non-state actors. One of them is controlled by Kurdish-led forces, the other controlled by several rebel factions. And they are fighting on the front lines between different groups, but also on top of that, there's still fighting happening in regime-controlled areas, so those areas are not secured. You have infighting between pro-regime forces due to competition over resources and influence, as well as assassinations, whether targeting former rebel forces or targeting regime individuals. So he has been able to have the upper hand, but the conflict is still ongoing. Still going. And just take us back to this extraordinary list of atrocities and killings that he has presided over. You just remind us of the scale of this. Sure. I think it will be, it'll be quite difficult to list all the atrocities committed by the regime in a few minutes. But just to name a few, the, with, with the beginning of the uprising, the regime started killing thousands of peaceful protesters and then started arresting thousands of activists and civilians. Then, at a later stage, started attacking civilian facilities and residential areas using airstrikes, cluster munition, and even chemical attacks that basically were used a few times. I actually was witness to one of those attacks during my visit to Syria back in the day, and I was in a town close by when it was attacked. And it's unfortunate that we are seeing those normalization efforts and not much is happening to hold Assad accountable. Christopher, what does this mean for the region? This is a huge change. As Sanam's saying, it hasn't come out of nowhere, even though it, it might have burst with some surprise on the outside world. But it still marks a huge change from what the reaction to what Hayd was just describing. Yeah, to a point, I don't think it's as great a shift as you might think. I actually would argue that Assad's re-entry into the Arab League and the normalisation with him is more a symptom rather than a cause of geopolitical change in the region. So actually, the big shift occurred back in March when Saudi Arabia and Iran had a detente that was brokered by China. And this formal detente with Assad and letting Assad back into the Arab League is a sign of that. This is actually quite, in my view, quite a small move that Saudi Arabia has made in inviting Assad back into the Arab League to attend the Arab League conference in Jeddah. That is a way of, in to some extent, throwing some meat to Iran in the hope that will facilitate more compromise on Yemen, which is far more important to Saudi Arabia. So that's where that comes from. I think actually Salah made a really good point, which is this is something that is not sudden. It's something that she's been building over a really long time. And actually, I'd go even further back than when Sanam was talking about. She was talking about when the first diplomatic shifts began to move in 2021. Actually, this goes all the way back to 2015. This goes all the way back to Russia's intervention in the Syria civil war, at which point it became clear that Assad wouldn't lose. It's a good point that's been made by Haydn Sanam that he hasn't won. But from that point onwards, the goal of the war, which was to topple Assad, was over. And since then, you saw a gradual withdrawal of, of support from the Arab states like Saudi Arabia and Qatar to the opposition. And gradually, bit by bit, a willingness to accept that Assad was going to be remaining in Damascus and eventually some kind of normalisation would have to happen. And we're just at the end point of that process that began all the way back in 2015. 
I'm going to come back to Russia in just a second, but Salam, if you could pick up that point about Iran and where this rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia fits into all this. Do you agree it's part of the same picture? Absolutely. I think Chris raises the key connection here. Iran benefits very much from the normalization of Assad, and the Iranians are (laughs) by no means hiding it. They're quite happy to see the man that they have backed for a long war, and they've been close with the family dating back decades. They're very happy to see him rehabilitated. It means that Iran isn't going to be the only player in Syria, and they're happy to share the economic landscape, the infrastructure, reinvestment landscape, but ultimately seeing him remain as the principal political player is a vindication of their policy and strategy that began in 2012. Christopher, where does this leave Russia? Russia's very happy that Syria is being rehabilitated. What Russia really wants with regard to Syria is a degree of normality. They've invested a huge amount militarily and diplomatically in keeping Assad in power, as have the Iranians as well. And it's taken a very long time to to reach this point. But there is a hope that perhaps if the Arab world can accept Assad back, there could be a degree of stabilization in the areas at least that Assad controls. You might see an increase in trade with between Syria and the wider Arab world. Perhaps also this might facilitate or begin a degree of normalization with Turkey as well. And you might therefore get what Russia really wants is Syria to just be a normal ally again that it can rely upon, that it doesn't have to expend a huge amount of diplomatic and military effort in. It's not there yet, but that's what it wants. So it's very happy with this process and indeed has actually put a little bit of pressure on the Arab states to normalize with with Assad. That is a component of this process. Hayid, what does this mean for the victims of Assad? Do their claims, their families' claims, just get brushed aside as everyone moves towards this kind of real politique, if you like? Sadly, when you look at the normalization discussions between Arab states and the regime, most of those discussions are mainly focusing on addressing some of the regional concerns, as Sana mentioned, related to drug trafficking, the return of Syrian refugees, terrorism and stuff like that. And not much discussions have been basically happening with regard to holding the perpetrators accountable, whether those are affiliated with the regime or with others. Now, That means that those states, among others, will be happy to turn a blind eye for the sake of de-escalating in the region and stabilizing the region because that's what their main aim is. But fortunately, you have many Syrian organizations and international agencies as well that have been documenting all the atrocities that have been committed in Syria and linking them to the perpetrators within the regime with the hope that one day they will be able to bring those who committed those atrocities to justice. Meanwhile, what they have been able to do is that they are using some some of the evidence they have collected to bring some of the regime individuals who are based in Europe to basically to court. We have seen that in Germany. We are now seeing that in France. So most hopefully that will at least give some hope to the victims and their families while bigger sort of effort for accountability will happen down the line. You put it very well. We've been talking slightly as if all the countries in the region think the same thing and this is a very smooth process, but there's quite a range of views and some unease about this, isn't there? Definitely. I think you have some countries who have been very vocal about their objection 
and they are saying we will not normalize unless there is a political solution. And one of those countries is Qatar. You have countries who have not been as vocal, but they are discreetly saying we will not normalize with Assad. You have, for example, Kuwait, you have even Yemen, you have Morocco, for example. And then you have third category of countries that have agreed to shake hands with Assad, but they said that we will not do more unless we see some progress on Assad's side with regard to the issues we discussed earlier. But I don't think that Assad will actually give them what they want. So what we will most likely see is that you see some countries that are already fully, they have fully restored their ties with Assad and countries who will stay away from him and then some will stay in between. So yeah, it's a long, it's a long process and it's not over yet. Can I just jump in there and just add, it's a really key point about the Assad regime is that it waits. That's their whole mentality since sort of Hafez al-Assad took power in 1970 is we won't change, you will. And they have a long history of being exiled by both their neighbours and by the international community, being sanctioned, being punished for various unpleasant behaviours, such as the alleged assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri, the former prime minister of Lebanon in 2005. And their strategy is just to wait it out and wait until the geopolitics of the region or the world alters until Syria is useful once again and it is their enemies that end up compromising and accepting them for who they are rather than forcing any change. And that absolutely is their strategy here. So all those countries that Haid's talking about, Assad is not thinking, okay, we'll we'll make a few, we'll show a bit of leg and we'll offer a little bit of a few changes here and there. No, they're just thinking, we will wait until you need us again. Not sure that's the metaphor about showing a bit of leg that, I, that, I, that, 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 that I would reach for in this particular context. But, but you're absolutely right that waiting can be a very effective strategy for all kinds of regimes and groups, particularly if you're up against adversaries who are less patient. Sanam, where does the US fit in to all this? It's been trying to do things about ISIS in the region, but it has also downplayed the Middle East in its own national security strategy. Is it now really out of this picture? That's the big question. And I think that many states in the region are deeply frustrated about where the United States is. And I think that there's a clear vacuum in Washington on Syria's strategy. They have not taken a proactive posture. You even hear people saying that they've quietly encouraged this to happen behind the scenes. But I think it deeply reflects that Washington is not developing a, a military or diplomatic pathway to Assad. It's comfortable with normalization in the sense that they are not responsible for it. But the Syrian landscape today, I think, is a reflection of huge Western failure, of the many Western failures that have taken place in the Middle East. We're not going to talk about all of them. It is a reflection of deep Western failure of policy and a forward-looking policy. And it's also, I think, a reflection of the tensions that are going to play out at the geopolitical level and the regional level going forward. Because if you think about the complexity of actors that are involved in Syria, you have the U.S., and Russia, and the fact that... And Iran. And, and Iran. But the fact that the U.S. didn't do anything in 2015 or didn't defend the red line, Obama's famous red line way back when in 2012, many Middle Eastern leaders will tell you this is why we are where we are today. This is, this is an old story that is, again, resurfacing. And then you add to the layer the Emiratis and the Iranians and the Turks and 
the Israelis and the Jordanians and the Saudis. And you can just see that this is an opportunity for Assad to do what Chris really laid out, what the Assads do best, lean back and, and wait it out. If I may, just uh, Sanam said is, is, is completely correct. But I think that the U.S. has been trying to rely on their sanctions in order to say that, okay, we will not allow you to normalize with Assad. So that politically did not work because many countries have restored political ties with Assad. But their sanctions are preventing them from financing Assad and paying for the reconstruction in Syria. But we don't know for how long that would actually work. So more is needed on that front, but I don't think there's any willingness to do more than that. No, it's such an interesting and complicated picture, and this ends up strengthening Iran's hands, something that the U.S. has been wishing would not happen, but in many ways actually contributing to. We have no time to go into that one because we are going to drop in Zelensky into the picture and Zelensky's trip to Saudi Arabia, which is our second subject at the Arab League summit. Sanam, what was Zelensky trying to achieve? The Gulf Arab states in particular have taken a very, they would say, balanced posture to the war in Ukraine, but they have been trying to be non-aligned effectively, recognizing that Russia is a country of influence in the region, as we discussed with Syria, but also they cooperate in OPEC+. And hosting Zelensky is about showcasing the relevance of the region, offering the possibility of perhaps future mediation, and also ultimately, really, I think, highlighting that their non-aligned posture is going to continue regardless of Western pressure and regardless of the sort of divide between the global north and the global south that has been exposed as a result of this war. So they're going to talk to both sides and explore, in the case of Saudi Arabia, whether they can be a broker in some way. Haid, what are the feelings about Ukraine, do you think, in the region? Unfortunately, despite the atrocities committed in Ukraine, Ukraine is not a, a big topic in the region for two main reasons. The first is that it's far away from the region. And the second is that there are many conflicts closer to home that directly impact the security of those who live there. And because of that, it's down the list of their priorities. But you have those who actually have a position, their position is usually influenced by their relationship or position towards the actors involved. So, for example, you have many Syrians who oppose Assad would be pro-Ukraine because they suffer from Russia's atrocities as well. While in other countries, you have many people who might be pro-Russia, for example, in Algeria and even in, in, in Qatar, in Tunisia. And their position there could be because they view Russia more favorably, but or could be because of the heavy involvement of the U.S. in the Ukrainian conflict. So that could push them in the other direction. But in general, unfortunately, it's not a topic that people discuss on a daily basis. No, I remember one UAE official saying to me, it was in the Munich Security Conference, and Ukraine was the big topic, and said, why don't you countries care about our conflicts, our refugees, as much as you seem to Ukraine? There was a lot of anger behind that. Christopher, has Zelensky achieved anything with this visit? Yes, he has, in that he has continued to raise his profile in the wider non-Western world. And of course, immediately after going to Jeddah, he went on to the G7 meeting in Hiroshima, which was 
aimed at doing the same. It wasn't so much that he wanted to speak to the G7 leaders there, so he wanted to speak to the non-G7 leaders such as India who had been invited because he wants to keep making his case and he wants to be given a platform. Now, it won't have... Uh, the effect that perhaps outside observers might think that he's actually trying to woo the Arab world to ab abandon this position of non-alignment or neutrality that Sanam was talking about. But he's still getting himself out there and getting his message out there, which at this point is his goal. I would add, though, that this needs to be viewed through a slightly different lens as well, which is through the lens of Saudi Arabian international politics. This is actually a very shrewd move by Riyadh to invite Zelensky. We're talking about Zelensky as much as we're talking about Assad. You know, what Saudi Arabia did in inviting Assad back could have been highly controversial and could have, been, could have provoked a huge amount of condemnation from Saudi Arabia's Western allies. But at the same time, they invited Zelensky, the darling of the West at the moment, which absolutely confirms this notion that Salam's talking about, that Saudi Arabia is positioning itself and the wider Arab world as this neutral space where both Putin's very close ally, Assad, and his enemy, Zelensky, can come together at Jeddah in this sort of Arab summit. So, yeah, it's a very shrewd move by Saudi Arabia. Do you agree with that, Haid? I think it is, but whether it achieved that the objective, that's a different story, because if you... For example, look at the reaction in the Arab world. You would see many people who have been vocal about basically their disappointment. And I think part of it is mainly because they expected more and they did not expect that shift. What we talked about, uh, the UAE and their shift, that happened over a few years. The Saudis' uh, shift happened over few months, if not less. This is why I think the shock was a bit bigger. So that was a smart move. But at least in the region, it did not distract that people's attention from assets being readmitted to the Arab League. And the summit was trying to do other things as well. We're talking a lot about Zelensky, which was happening. What else was it trying to achieve? It's funny because the Arab League is not seen to be the most effective regional security organization, and I can see Secure, indul indulging in understatement there, <laughs> holding but, back yeah. laughter. <laughs> but uh, you know, this was an effort at showcasing Arab unity and actually bringing back Saudi Arabia as a more maybe responsible, pragmatic, moderate actor. But I think that's what they were trying to achieve above all. I, I don't think this is going to reinvigorate the Arab League, nor is it going to be the institution that will be taking the lead to manage the myriad of security challenges that are on the table. But ultimately, we have seen most of the countries in that forum pursue a pathway of really remarkable de-escalation, which goes beyond Syria, but includes Iran, it includes Turkey. And so we are at this fork in the road moment where regional states are trying to be proactive, managing their dynamics, perhaps for transactional purposes. What that means and how that's going to evolve remains unclear, but this is a unique moment for the region. I think it, definitely, but I think that the problem with the Arab League is that most of them, they sit and talk as if they're analysts, not heads of states. They provide recommendations. <laughs> That's a marvelous point. Yes. <laughs> they provide recommendations as if they are not the ones who are making the decisions. And I think that says it all. Because that's why you don't see any impact of that statements or that decisions they make on the ground. I think it's an interesting moment, as Sanam says, in 
the region's geopolitics. It actually, in many ways, if you look at the statements that came out of the Jeddah summit, there was a lot about agreeing to not interfere in one another's affairs and going through de-escalation problem-solving processes, which is quite a shift from the last decade, the sort of post-2011 decade, which has been all about interfering in one another's affairs, direct and indirect intervention. In many ways, it echoes the statements that were made in the Khartoum summit of 1967, right after the Arab states were defeated by Israel. When, again, prior to that point, they'd been interfering in one another's affairs in civil wars, rather than been occurring in the last decade. And at that moment, they said, OK, we've got to stop doing this. We need to respect state sovereignty. Now, interestingly, that didn't last. It lasted about a decade, and then they started interfering with one another again. Whether or not we're in a similar position now, where this is a momentary respite, whether or not it's something that will last for a longer time than that, or won't have any effect at all, I'm not sure. But it is interesting that language has come back. Yeah, just to add to that, I think in general, the de-escalation sort of uh, pattern has been clear. But what people are not paying as much attention to is that new tension that is basically mounting between different actors who were allies until recently. So what we will most likely see different escalations that might be more discreet, but they are definitely not going away anytime soon and they will only increase. What I would also add is that the Arab League is not inclusive and there are many non-Arab states that are missing from that body. In order to build on this moment, The region needs an inclusive regional security structure, not to build this harmonious region that we don't anticipate, but really to deconflict and to conflict manage. So that's what, you know, we could hope to achieve in the next decade before things break out again. On that bit of conditional hope and warning about rising tensions, we are going to have to leave this subject. So a big thank you to all my guests, Salam Vakil, Haid Haid and Christopher Phillips to follow them all on Twitter. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media. So do follow and subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask that. We always appreciate it, whatever you say. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we'd really love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of all our programs. Chris, I understand you have a new book out on the Middle East. It's out in February, yes. It's Fine. Called, it's called Battleground, The Struggle for the New Middle East in Ten Conflicts, and it's published by Yale University Press. All right. I can't say it's a Christmas present then. February. <laughs> That's all the way into next year when many other things will be happening. Next week, we're going to be heading over to India to discuss the challenges facing New Delhi in Asia and whether we may, in fact, be facing an Indian century rather than a Chinese one. Goodbye from me, Bromo Maddox. Thank you for listening. Thank you.